ride with me in my foul life. This episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by Secure It Gun Safes. The gun safe industry has lost touch with what owners really need, but Securit is changing the game. Their products meet the highest industry standards and are trusted by law enforcement agencies, military personnel, and gun owners across the country. What sets Securit apart is the focus on customization and adaptability. The cradle grid technology allows you to customize the layout of your gun safe to fit your specific firearms, and the modular design lets you add or remove components as your needs change. And the best part? Securit offers a variety of gun safes to choose from so you can find the perfect fit for your collection. Whether you need a compact hidden gun safe for your bedside or a large gun cabinet to store your entire collection, Securit has you covered. Securit's Fastbox hidden gun safes are designed for quick and easy access and can be mounted in a variety of locations for maximum flexibility. And unlike traditional gun safes that are heavy and difficult to move, these products are lightweight and easy to install. Don't settle for a one-size-fits-all gun safe that doesn't meet your needs. Head over to SecuritGunStorage.com to learn more and to order your own in innovative gun storage solutions today. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by Corning Ford. If you're in the market for a new vehicle, look no further than Corning Ford. Their unbeatable selection and dedicated staff make car buying a breeze. With competitive pricing and excellent customer service, you'll drive away in a vehicle you love and peace of mind in a dealership you can trust. Don't forget to mention your favorite podcast sent you when you visit Corning Ford today. So you enjoy fishing yesterday? Yeah, it was a good time, wasn't it? it was a, that was a good time. It's it's good to get out, man. It is really good. Have okay. you found it like working? Secure it is, you know, it's not just hunting. It's obviously shooting and firearms. And yeah, as a whole in your travels, have you found that, that it's a pretty common theme of the personalities you meet and the individuals you meet, the groups you hang out with and associate with? Are they all pretty much cut from that fabric that you were with yesterday? Um, I say there's two groups. There's there's the group of what I call your classic American. Just um, I don't want to say God guts and guns, but it's that that adventure lifestyle and that you know living off the land, the you know traditional values of doing things right. Then there's also the military retired military group. There's a huge overlap that they share, but the military guys. There's a little bit of a difference because they've got a bond that ties them together, especially if you're dealing with, uh, like if I'm working with uh, like a SOCOM, team guys where they were deployed together, worked together in tough situations together, that's a pretty unique bond. I don't see that in the civilian side, but civilian side, I think is is salt of the earth the right term we're looking for? I think so. It's... uh, you know, it's in my form, like my music days and early career living in Los Angeles, I dealt with more a lot of city people. It's a different mentality. And I, it's one that I don't necessarily understand that well. I mean, I can, I can hang with city people. I do a lot of work, you know, I do a lot of stuff, but it's when I turn off my business time, I'm, I'm outdoors. I'm, in a, I'm at a bar and I'm, you know, I'm driving a tractor. I've just, I much prefer to be in in the world we live in you know out in the country 
What do city people do? What's that mentality? They go, they work in the city, they go eat dinner at a nice restaurant, and then they go home and then repeat? I, I, I don't know. I, it looks like that's what they do. They yeah, travel, I've got, I'm sure. I've got a lot of people that live, I know people that live in Manhattan, and they absolutely love it. I mean, again, I lived in Hollywood for several years, and yeah, I was a lot younger, but there's always something to do. There's always action. But, you know, I guess it's... Uh, when you're younger in life, maybe you're you're looking for more stuff like that. I find, you know, with business, all the stuff going on in life, raising a family, all the craziness, it's that, that time when I'm, you know, I'm up in the morning, 4.35, I'm out at my ranch, you know, I'm doing something out there, and I usually go to work in my office at 9, but most in the summer, every day I'm out there, and I find that time just all by myself, either I'm, whether I'm on a tractor or whether I'm setting up a video shot or putting up tree stands, it's uh that's just time with me and nature and it's uh that's the best part of my day sometimes i bet the the city people would say they find time in nature whether it might be the beach it might be their backyard it might be you know friends coming over to grill stuff like that but there's something about the country or the back roads or things that are getting you know i guess out of your comfort zone to where yeah. me, I find like, you know, during COVID, a lot of people are like, oh, we're going to be in solitude. We're going to be on our own. And hunters are kind of used to that. You know, I'm used to that, that downtime or that slow yeah. time in a turkey tree when you're not talking or like you in a deer stand or, you know, you have a lot of that to where hunters were, I think, wired for that or outdoorsmen or women gatherers, you know, that mentality. I think that that could have probably been a little bit more detrimental to that lifestyle that that is like that nine to five in town and then that you know that you see it in whether it's movies or whatever it's the five o'clock happy hour and everybody's at the bar and it's a lot of camaraderie yeah. and i'm and i do enjoy that once in a while but i don't know if that lifestyle of the city folks really understands and we mentioned this yesterday on yeah. our drive i don't know if they really understand that it's available out there that yeah, you can it's... be by yourself and in, in, in a tractor watching the sun come up putting up trail cameras yeah. watching a deer run across the wheat field like i don't know if they understand that it's even part of our 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 country or our heritage yeah or if you even if it if they take the time i'm not say city but there are people i see it sometimes with my kids in the modern digital world there are so many people that live with constant input from sources they've always got music on they've always got a tv on they've always got something making noise making you know some sort of input and the idea of walking quietly with no and just listening to the nuances of a forest that's one of the things i love about you know bow hunting is getting in a tree stand you know 45 minutes before sun up and then just sitting there no noise, and then just listening to the forest wake up because it's it's a unique experience. I, I share that with the guys at hunting because yeah, I never thought that that really you know everybody talks about it. it's one of the cool things of hunting. You know, I come back from you know this past year I was in a bow in a tree stand with a bow. I'll bet I spent twenty five days, twenty five mornings. I never had a shot. I was like, oh man, tough. I said, no, I had a great season though. I shot some great video of. Uh, I had two four-point bucks right under me sparring. It's about a five-minute video on my phone. Just, just cool stuff. But just being there tied to nature in those quiet moments when you're picking up all those little nuances of what, what's actually going on around us. 
and you know getting away from you know the world that we've created the the human world is a noisy chaotic place it doesn't have to be but so many people are wrapped up like like use the term city people they love that constant you get a new yorker sometimes spend their whole life there out in the country and the peace and quiet drives them nuts but it's kind of that's the best time to do some thinking isn't it <laughs> well i think so but what about the what about let's just take deer hunters for example mm-hmm. Whitetail deer hunters specifically, tree stand hunters that are going on long sits. You know, 15 years ago or, you know, maybe even a decade ago, maybe more current than that. I mean, I don't really know the timing of the smartphone explosion. I know the Internet, I know, you know, Wi-Fi and the World Wide Web and, and the smartphone comes along. Now deer hunters have what I, you know, we call an automatic babysitter for kids. You know, you see these kids that are just always on these iPads. Oh, or, no. But now when you're in the deer stand, are people getting, are they staying disconnected? Because 15 years ago, you couldn't be on this big screen iPhone Pro Max Plus, whatever they call. Every September, a new one's released. And even if you don't have internet, you have games. You have photos to look at. You have emails to go back and brush up on from yep. the previous week. You have texting conversations you might not be able to send out with bad service, but you can type, at least type them and be ready. Are Do you think deer hunters are staying disconnected, or are they automatically waiting to hear that branch break or that snort wheeze or something? But they're on there. It seems to me like that everybody's got that phone on them all the time now, even when they're supposed yeah. to be having that peace and quiet. You know what I mean? I do, and... I've busted myself on that, and it's the the dopamine hit you get from digital input is real. And I've got a friend of mine who turned me on to the redneck blinds, and I bought a bunch of them for my for the ranch. And I like them. He he's like, Tom, it's great, man. I tell you what, I get set up, and uh, I've got my laptop. I'm doing. I'm working. I'm in. It's like he's in a tree. He goes, but I'm working. I've got. I'm getting like a. All, he's getting his work done. He's got a heater in there. He goes, and I'm just. Back in my mind, it's just like, he's not hunting, he's working. And, you know, that's great that he's out there and he's able to keep in touch with clients. He's a financial advisor, or maybe he needs, his clients need that access to him. But this past season, I found myself in a stand. I had the iPhone with me. And, you know, I'm on the phone just flipping through stuff, looking at stuff. And it occurred to me, you know, what are you doing? You know, why I could sit home with my phone. What am I missing? You know, just... The ridiculousness of me sitting out in this incredible setting and in the middle of nature, and there's nobody, the nearest human is, is miles from me. And I'm sitting with this stupid phone. So I turned it off, and then the next times I went out hunting, I brought my phone, because my wife, you know, safety reasons, but the phone stayed in the tracker, you know, stayed in my vehicle. I didn't bring it up to the stand. I don't bring it to the stand anymore because... If I bring the phone up there, I find myself sitting for a while and I find a reason or excuse to pull it out and look. Whether it's like, oh, I'm going to take a picture of that leaf. Yeah. But while now, I'm doing I do that, bring I'm, a camera, I do, but I don't use my cell phone but camera. Not the cell now. Phone I've got, camera. Yeah, I've got a small digital camera that I carry when I hunt. And uh, I'm trying to figure out a GoPro setup that I can make work. I'm still, I can't get that quite right. But just leaving the phone down on the vehicle. It for I mean it puts you in that I don't have the option now to turn something on. So what do I do? Well, I'm sitting there. I've got I got 25, 30 minutes before there's any light. But your thoughts just kind of drift, and all of a sudden you find yourself. You know, I'm processing 
from business ideas to family ideas, just all the stuff that we're, and you, you solve so many internal struggles, internal problems, things you don't even think about solving, but then you're, you get back from hunting, it's like you, didn't, you never had a shot, but why do you feel so good? Why well, is like, oh, I, had a great, I had a great morning. Because I think may, maybe that quiet time thinking allows you to resolve stresses. In, in your life that you're kind of the, you know, we all carry stressful stuff with us all the time from arguments we had to, to decisions we have to make. Um, and so many people don't give themselves thinking time, quiet time, shutdown time. I mean, would that be considered meditation? Cause if people, you hear people say, I meditate. I have, I practice the art or the yeah. discipline, I should say of meditation. You sit in a certain you know, position, mm-hmm. you, you hold your head and hands in a certain position. Some people pray. Um, what would that be considered in the, in the, you can do all of that in the deer blind, but what, what constitutes it becoming meditation? Because I feel like you just described it thinking open thoughts, fresh air, mother nature, like yeah. the, the sound of the woods waking up. There's nothing like it. No, it's, there's nothing like it. Is that meditation? Is it's I, therapy for sure. It's there. I definitely, definitely therapy. I don't think it's meditation. I mean, I've, I've done when I was battling in my hardcore battle with, um, tendonitis when I was a guitar player and I was losing my, I lost my, my career was over and I kind of knew it cause I was not going to be able to play again. I was, it was just a really difficult time. And I, ended up buying back then cassette cassette tapes on meditation self-meditation self-hypnosis and i got really into it and i think there's a difference the goal for me with like with meditation was to try to get to clear your mind of all thought and really you go into this extremely single point you know focus of just separating yourself from the world almost just for for a brief time and it's it's almost, I think when you can do that, it's almost like rebooting a computer. Could you come out of meditation and you're kind of relaxed and you feel good and you get and you get going again? But I think the time in a tree stand, for me, it's you know meditation is you become unaware of your surroundings and you're completely focused inward. When I'm in a tree stand, I become hyper aware. Wait, say that again. In meditation, you what? You become you, you, hyper focused. No, no, you're you're in in when you're meditating, you're. Your goal, I, I believe, I'm not an expert on this, but is to eliminate any focus or any thought of the outside world, any sounds, any distractions. Your goal is to become completely focused inward. And I've seen people meditate in places where they're on a beach and there's things going on, but they're completely disconnected. Their eyes are closed and they're unaware of their surroundings because they're completely focused inwards. Oh. And when you really get to a high level of meditation, you're completely disconnected from the world. The world that you're sitting in at that moment yet when i'm in a tree stand i think it's the opposite i think you become i mean for me i become hyper aware of my environment especially when it's, the sun is just coming up because when you can't see anything you hear better and all you do, do is hear, and you're hearing these things that from the creaking of trees to the the nocturnal animals to and then as the sun just starts coming up and lightening up i start you start trying to see, but it's still dark, and your eyes play tricks on you as the light comes up. Saying, "Is that a is that a is that a animal? Is that a head of an animal right there?" 
you know, a few minutes goes by and you realize, oh no, that's a trunk of a tree. That's you start seeing stuff differently, and then the mice come up. You'll see scurrying around, and the birds are changing as the sun comes up. You see different birds are flying, or different birds are making noise, as all their, you know, all their voices start being heard. Then after the sun's up a little bit, all those voices calm down. All the birds stop, and other animals you hear. But you, I disconnect from my thought and my process of, you know, we've got a marketing push. I've got to travel next week. All the, the life stuff. My kids, I got this. I got an event. I got to go. All that goes away. And I'm just 100% focused on what am I hearing and seeing right this second, right now. And then uh, hopefully, you know, you're there in that stand for a while. It's like 7.05 or so. And you hear a branch snap. And then, then you're like, now you're now you're dialed in. Heart rate picks up a little bit, and you're like, all right. And uh, again, I never had a shot this year with a bow, but boy, I heard some deer. Um, it sounded like it sounded like a football team going through the woods. You know, it was a buck chasing um, a doe, and the doe was moving quietly. Glimpses of glimpses of the deer. It was a lot of brush. But that buck was going through stuff. He didn't care. And it was, it was just, it's fun to listen to. And you don't think about how much noise these guys can make, you know, during the rut. Because you, normally you consider deer pretty quiet in the woods. But, uh, you know, those are and their personal experiences. You don't share them. I don't share them by hunting mornings with, you know, I would come and say, so what happened, honey? I said, eh, I sat in a stand. Nothing happened. Yeah, it's because they wouldn't understand, you no, think? No, I don't think so. Now, my wife doesn't hunt. She uh, she enjoys the food, but she has really no interest in hunting. But she does want to come out. I said, honey, you've got to come out with me. I'm going to put you in a tree stand and just have you sit and watch the forest wake up. So we're going to wait till it warms up. It's still really cold up at the ranch right now. It warms up a little bit. And uh, this summer I'll get her out there in the morning. And uh, do you th- What do you think her reaction will be? I think, she, I th- I think she's just going to have a – just going to like it. You do. She's yeah. not going to be like, let's get to the boat and on the lake because I got to have, I got to have the no. a different kind of gratification. No, no. She's uh, she and I are cut from the same cloth of, you know, peaceful solitude. I so don't after all that you just described, the forest yeah. waking up, the the yeah. football team running through the trees, the <clears throat> the nocturnal animals, the sounds. You know, this is of a higher power. What's going on? Why do you feel in your psyche, if a deer did walk in within distance of your arrow, why would you have to kill that deer? I don't why do we have to kill? Not that we have to, but why do we? Why, after you, all that peace and tranquility that you just described, yeah. why, does, why does blood have to be shed at, you know, with all of that happening? What is it about the hunt? Because you just described what hunting is. Yeah. But then there's the part of you're taking an animal's life. Why, Tom, do you choose to take? Because you do have a bow with you. Because if it yeah. goes down, you're doing it. Yeah. Why? Is it because you eat it? Is it because it's part of your, your your sustainable diet? No, you know, I do enjoy, I mean, I take it a, a point to try to harvest every bit of usable material from an animal I, I take. Right. Just out of respect. But it's... I think it comes back to the the purity of the moment, and uh, and who we are and where we all came from. But there there's a tie to heritage. There's a tie to your actual evolution of humans. And there's that moment. Yeah, the the deer is there. Do I need to shoot a deer for food? No, I can go to the grocery store and buy 
fill my fridge with ribeye steaks and, and eat like a king. But there's a purity of that moment. You, the deer, animal, you know, the deer, nature, your surroundings, and then the challenges of the shot. You know, is it is there some brush? Are there branches involved? Is there distance involved? And there's, you know, you're you're processing all this. I would, you know, I don't take shots that I know I can't make, and I didn't have any opportunities this year. But there's previous years where I've had, you know, deer come by like, wow, okay, this this is, and the shot doesn't present itself, and you kill yourself for letting it go. I mean, it's just like, you know, I think back going. I should have taken the shot, but in the moment, no, I shouldn't have because I knew I, I knew this was a risky shot, and I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want to disrespect an animal by putting an arrow through its leg, <laughs> you know, and then it takes off, and I can't find it, and he's still moving quick enough where I'm not going to find him. He's not bleeding much, but he's not going to survive, and he's going to have a, a difficult, um, slow death probably. So it's there's that there's that purity of the moment. Yeah, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of, of what happens. And I have that decision to make. This is a clean shot. It's a good shot. And that animal is going to provide food for me and my family and I. And I think it just pushes us all right back to, uh, you know, it ties us to our distant past. When if you didn't, if you didn't, if you, if you weren't successful, your family went hungry. You know, we don't have that anymore in America. But... Being in that situation kind of brings you back to that, and you, you the, the, all those thoughts and stuff. And there's, I don't know, there's, for me, it's just something, clarity of thought, purity of thought, for, at that moment, and, and hyper focus, where you're just your whole world just narrows down to this, this one thing, and it's hard. You, if you got, you know, if you've got your bow drawn and you're waiting for the deer to present or turn, are you completely unaware of things around you besides that? I've never tested it, but I bet you are. You know, it's. I wonder how many people draw up on a deer or some, or, or they're looking at that shot and they don't realize there's another, there's another, there's another opportunity. Or I, I mean, I really don't know, but uh, it's an interesting tunnel vision that forms probably. That gets a you know. That, I like single point focus, where your mind, everything, your total brain power is used for one thought, and. There's a, there's a, you can achieve that in a lot of things. Sports, that's the goal of a lot of sports, I think, is that same. The best players in the best sports, you know, Michael Jordan, when he's playing, when he was playing basketball, on his game going in for the drive, he's not thinking of all the mechanics of his game. He's in that moment. For him, it's just purity of motion, purity of, and he knows that shot goes. He knows it's going in. And his, you know, that whole world for him, he's unaware of the crowd. He's unaware of everything. It's just that almost like a slow motion moment. It's just happening. Do you practice enough to get in that, to get that focus, focal point like Michael Jordan does of that purity to where he doesn't, he doesn't even think about his mechanics because he's practiced so many hours for that moment. He's ready, prepared. Do you feel like you're disciplined enough in that moment as a bow hunter? No. No, because... I don't have time, and I don't have the, the like. I have not been on bow hunt for five, almost five years because of shoulder injury. This year, I I got into aggressive workout routine and got so I can draw a bow. But I, I'm afraid to practice enough because I don't want to re-injure it. But that does. I mean, that just narrows my sphere. I know in, you know, in 30 yards, 
30 yards, I'm going to make a kill shot. Beyond 30 yards, I'm not sure, so I'm not taking it. My bow is capable of, of going longer, but I, don't, I just don't take those shots. Um, if, I, if I'm hunting with a crossbow, which I didn't this year, I've, I've done that in the past, I can stretch it because I, I can practice with a crossbow and I can dial that in. And that technology is just crazy. But uh, as a guitar player, absolutely. I played 10 hours a day, 8 to 10 hours a day every day when I was a kid. And I could get to a point playing where I called it playing at the speed of thought, where you're, I'm just jamming over some tracks or something and uh, just kind of shut the eyes off, and I just disconnect from the mechanics of the instrument. I'm no longer thinking about picks and fingers and, and, what, and where I'm, where's my hand on the keyboard and on the fretboard and what's happening. I'm just listening to the music, listening to what's coming out of the guitar, and just letting it happen. And it's, it's just as I think of, the, I hear the chords, I'm thinking of these melodies, and they're just coming out. I'm just playing them. But I'm no longer thinking about the mechanics, I'm going to bend this note and do this stuff. And uh, I can't get back to that now. I can't do that now. I just can't play enough. Um, the other point, you know, single point focus, you know, I was racing cars in the 90s. Uh, I drove an R RX-7 and SCCA. I loved doing it. I never knew why because it's people think, oh, you're cool, you're driving cars, but there's something more about it. And I realized that there was a, a race I was in, and uh, it was a battle. I won the race, but it was me and another guy. It was a tight, tight, tight race. And he's right on my butt, and we're screaming around this little this track and two little RX-7s. And when you're driving a car, you're, you know, driving a race car isn't white knuckle, you know, trying to see how fast you can go around turns. It's, it's like playing a song. It's like music in that you build that, that, that track I look at it like music, so I'm coming on straightaway. I've got break point, turning point, throttle on, exit point, break point. In every turn, I pick something, whether it's a cone, whether it's something, a marker. There's my break point. Okay, here's my turning point. And you build these points. And then as you're, as you're practicing that track, you keep moving those points in so your turns are tighter. You you're, you're spend more time on the throttle, but it's never... You take all the guesswork out. I know as I go by this tree, brakes on. I know at this point, throttle down. And I was in this race, and looking back at it, coming down the main straightaway into the first turn, it was a hard right-hand turn. I'm, we're going fast, and it's a big braking zone. My braking point was a drop of oil on the track. And I realized that after the race, I was, I was running through the race in my mind, and I realized coming down, it's a drop of oil, maybe an inch big, that was my focus. That was what I was seeing, and boom, oil, turn, boom, gone. This guy's right on my tail. If I make one mistake, he's going to pass me. You know, at that point, we're probably going 105. Going 30 miles an hour, I can't see a drop of oil on, on a road. But in the heat of that, in, in that, in that hyper-focused situation, that was my turning point. I can't deny that's what it was. I could drive that track now and not see a drop of oil on the track because you can't focus that much when the world's coming by you. But in that moment, your brain, I think there's, I think our brains have far more power than, than, than we ever use. And when you get in those hyper-focused moments, you're such tunnel vision, you're like, boom, there it is. You know, it's, and to me, that's the goal. That's what I'm always trying to get to, is those hyper-focused moments where you, you let go of the whole world and boom, that's, you know, that decision to take a shot. I do, like, if I'm long range, if I'm shooting, if I'm 
taking a longer shot at a deer, and I will. I've got scenarios, you know, right now at the ranch. My longest shot's probably 300 yards. I'm capable of going longer. That's the longest. But when you're in those longer shots, where you, you know you've got to be set up, but you're on the gun. Deer's moving slowly, and you're waiting for the spot where you know you're going to take him. I mean, talk about hyper-focus. Your whole world is that optic, the center of that reticle, the motion of the deer, and your heartbeat. Because you, you, you start picking up on that, and you start thinking about your breathing. And it all kind of, that circle of noise gets smaller and smaller and smaller. To Then as you lean on the trigger, and then, boom, the shot lets go. And uh, it's over. You know, the, and boom, all of a sudden you snap back, and you're like, I'm back in the world. Got him. Good. Let's go down there. Let's, you know. And now you're back in the noisy world. But for that quarter of a second, half second, maybe a second, the world didn't exist. Just that moment. Did you find any of that happening yesterday? <clears throat> meaning um, meaning that you just you cast out and you reel in. You let it drop a little bit. You a little, a, a little, a little what, bit. What is different about fishing? Because I didn't find myself in that moment at all yesterday. No, there's a lot of more input. reaction time. Yeah, I think when I look at fishing and why I like why fishing is fun is you don't choose to take the shot. You know what I mean? In hunting, I mean the, there's the hunt of finding the animal, but taking the shot, you're 100 percent in control. When you're fishing. You're doing the best you can to put something out there, but you're in, you have no control over the fish biting it. And that's more, you know, that's almost, the, I think the appeal to that is why some people love to go to Vegas and play slot machines. You never know. You even you, People pull the arm of a slot machine back when they had arms all afternoon. And I look at that and I think about fishing all afternoon. Are, are we just pulling a slot machine? I mean, we're putting ourselves to give ourselves the best odds of winning. But why do you, why do you cast out there 1,100 times in a morning? Some people think, that's what a waste of time. That's stupid. And sometimes you come home with no fish. It's still, it, I mean, being out in nature is always a win, but there's that uh, slot machine random nature of, boom, fish on. And it's a, uh, I don't gamble, but... I'll bet the sensation is the same. Would you consider the sensation of swimming in the ocean the same then? Because you have no control of what's underneath you and what's in it's, there? It's not the same, but it's... Uh, what's different? I mean, surfers out on there, like, yeah. they love the ride, they love the wave, but at any oh, time... Oh, in, in that case, yes. But at any me time, swim, you Me be... swimming in the ocean is... And I, I don't... I like to swim in the ocean at all, but there's that I'm no longer on top of the food chain. And so you, you you thinking about that oh yeah. when you go into the ocean? I do, absolutely. So, like, are you walking in from a beach or are you jumping off two miles I, out? I've done both. I mean, I, I'm a certified, <clears throat> I'm a paddy certified diver. I haven't been diving in many years, but I've done a lot of scuba diving. And uh, looking into the, like, you know, in South Pacific, you're diving on a reef or it's a island, volcanic island with a reef around it. And then the ocean drops off to thousands of feet, like, boom. And just looking off into that abyss is really intimidating, I think, because I'm no longer in control. Is there anything more intimidating than the ocean? I don't know. Because um, it is I, very intimidating. It can be. I think nature in general um, can be intimidating, but it's not – I don't find nature scary. Um, I find the ocean can be a little scary. 
If you don't respect it, it'll... Yeah, and it's just... At a pers- I mean, personally, the last way I would want to go is to be eaten by something. <laughs> you know? Wouldn't that suck? Drowning and being eaten by a shark at the yeah, same time? Yeah, that would be... Because uh, you might cut your leg off first and you're still breathing, but drowning yeah. at the same time. Although, bite your leg off, I should although say. Although the, the other side of that is, uh, is I'd rather go down in a, in a battle... I'd rather go down in a battle for my life than go down in a hospital bed. I mean, and I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to. I'm, that decision's already been made. Um, I'm not a. I'm not a big. I don't. I don't have a lot of faith in the medical system, and I don't. I don't. I don't do much with it. If I break my leg, I'll get my bones set. But as far as personal health, I get my blood work done every year, and uh, I pay to have that done, and I kind of do my own a- analysis of it. And uh, you can. There's so much information available to look at things and find things. And you know, my blood, my health was bad a year and a half ago. And I took it. And doctors offered me no help other than try this drug, take that drug, take this one. And uh, you know, we talked about. It. I, I went pure carnivore July 20th of last year. 90 days into it, I did my blood work again, and most of the issues I was dealing with were gone. The arthritis in my hands was gone. And uh, it took me another three months to get off of high blood pressure medicine because your body gets so addicted to that. But I finally, in February, moffed that. So I'm, I'm, I take no prescription drugs whatsoever. And uh, I'm the healthiest 61-year-old that I know. You know, it's tons of energy. I feel great. So I have a doctor, and he knows me. He knows what I'm like. And... But he knows if he's if he says, Tom, you know, this is the, the boom boom, this is what's going on. I say, no, I'm not going to take the let me let me do my own research, figure out because I believe that the human body self corrects and and does what's best for itself. And when as we get older and things start going wrong with our health, and we all start facing those, whether it's blood pressure or, or cholesterol, all these different things, it's because of what you're feeding your body. And everybody is a little different, probably, but for me. I eliminated toxins, um, the ones that were triggering my autoimmune system to basically attack myself. That's the arthritis is an autoimmune disorder. I eliminated green plants, and it's gone. People say, oh, you, you need vegetables. You don't. You need protein and fat. Your body will synthesize. Vegetarians say no way. I know. They, they do. And, and vegans say no, no way. It's true. In all fairness... Um, to that side of the equation. I have a very good friend, colleague, business owner. Um, he's been a mentor for me um, for many years and a uh, ton of respect for this guy, health, total health guy. And he went vegan shortly before I went carnivore. And I didn't know, I knew that he was a very healthy eater and we had dinner. Um, I was up there in, uh, in January at his house and uh, we all went out to dinner I'm carnivore and he's pure vegan. So we started talking, and it was interesting because he's he had some health issues going as well. He went pure vegan and, and saw benefit. I did a little research on that, and it seems people who are pure vegan do see a reduction in inflammation-based issues. People who go pure carnivore have a huge reduction in inflammation-based issues. It's possible that your body chemistry is different when you're a vegan versus a carnivore. It's a different way of breaking down foods, a different way of metabolizing and creating energy. It's possible the problem, big problems occur when you mix those two. 
I can't prove that, but it's possible that the balanced diet is actually really unhealthy for you and you're better off to be very single-minded and just narrow yourself down to stuff. I don't know, but for me, when I look at what the human body needs to survive, it needs protein from an outside source. You need fat from an outside source. You need calories. I use fat for calories because it's clean. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by Banded. If you're tired of settling for second-rate gear that doesn't perform when it counts, look no further than Banded, the ultimate choice for hunters and outdoor enthusiasts. From top-of-the-line hunting jackets to ultra-comfortable, meticulously crafted waders, Banded has everything you need to take your outdoor game to the next level. And what's more, their gear and camo patterns are anything but average, designed to give you the edge that you need to succeed. But it's not just their gear that makes Banded stand out. Their accessories, like their backpacks, are built to withstand anything the outdoors can throw at you. And their decoys are trusted by the best guides and outfitters across the nation. Trust us, you won't find better gear anywhere else. Head over to Banded.com and experience the difference for yourself. Choose Banded and dominate the outdoors like never before. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by Lear. Keeping your gear safe and secure on the road has never been easier than it is with Lear. With innovative features and design like the twist handle locking system and easy lift system, Lear's truck caps and tonneau covers provide added convenience and security for truck owners. And with durable and weather-resistant materials and fully customizable options, you can trust Lear to keep your cargo safe and dry no matter where you go. Upgrade your truck today with Lear's top quality accessories. Visit Lear.com now. So I assume no red meat, chicken and fish, because they say red meat is the anti, right? Like it's high in cholesterol. Um, it's going to, it's, it's, yeah. you should not fill your body with red meat, maybe more than once a week. There's, there's all kinds it's of crazy. arguments for it. If people knew what I eat, I mean, I'm, I'm six feet tall, hundred and right now, 167 pounds, maybe, um, tons of energy. I typically eat one to two meals a day. Um, if I do two meals, I'm doing a, a New York strip for lunch and a ribeye for dinner, but I can sit down and eat a 32-ounce steak, no problem. And it sustains me for almost 24 hours. And I never get, I never get cravings. I never get um, like you need a snack. I never have those 11 o'clock in the morning sinking spells. You know, if you have big pancake breakfast at 8 o'clock, Come 10, 30, 11 o'clock, you're dying. You, I mean, you need a cup of coffee because you're just, you're like, oh my God, I have no energy. I can't wait for lunch. Well, no, it's sugar versus insulin. And that's, that's what drives your energy level. And when, you, when I'm pure carnivore, I no longer deal with insulin. My body, I mean, I can produce it if I have to. Like sometimes I'll have fruit. I have some blueberries. It's a very clean fruit. And boom, okay, I'm producing insulin when I need it. But I never have... The energy chase because you eat something, like you're a can of soda full of sugar. And a can of soda, like a can of Coke, I mean, you're talking anywhere from you know, four grams of sugar is a teaspoon. Most soda has 40, so you're getting 10 teaspoons of sugar. Think about sitting down and just eating 10 teaspoons of sugar. Most people say, oh, there's no way I could do that. But a can of soda, you're doing it. It's toxic. That'll kill you, except your body can adjust by producing, pumping yourself with all this insulin, which balances out so your body does not get overloaded by this incredible level of energy that just hit, it, hit the bloodstream. And then it, you take all that sugar, gets converted into glycogen, stored in your body. That's, that's how you get fat. And once that, as that gets pulled out of your blood and stored, boom, all of a sudden, boom, your sugar level starts dropping. 
cool. Your body's saying, okay, cool. Sugar level's getting back to a healthy level. Problem is the insulin that's still in your system, that dissipates very slowly. And see, insulin, that when, you're, when that balance goes the other way, that's like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I need something. Give me a, a sugar. Like people who are eating candies and they constantly go back to have another one or a can of soda with sugar because now you're get, adding more sugar to balance out that insulin. Well, and then the, and now your insulin pumps back up because you got new sugar. And it's that, I call it chasing the dragon. And I've done, I, I live that way where you're, you know, or coffee. You have coffee, at, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning and a big, you know, I'm eating granola. I thought it was healthy. 10 o'clock, I'm dying. So I have another cup of coffee. I have some lunch, which is going to be, you know, who knows what, high carb lunch. Two, three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm dying again because the sugar levels are dropping, but my insulin level is high. Another cup of coffee. It's, uh, that's how most people live, I think. And going pure carnivore, I don't yawn. I don't take naps. I get up in the morning. I'm usually up at 4.35 in the morning. I'm going, I'm on. You've seen me. I'm in, I'm pretty much on all day. And I got tons of energy. I'm never yawning, never tired. And then about 9 o'clock at night, and my wife busts me on this, I, I'm ready for bed. I shut off. I can't, I can't stop that either. Like We'll be sitting talking after dinner, and I'm talking to her. We were just going with a basic conversation. All of a sudden, she goes, Tom, honey, go to bed. And she realized I'm talking. I'm falling asleep just in, in the, like a mid-conversation. And I go to bed, and boom, I'm out, and I sleep five hours, six hours max. Um, so your doctors aren't telling you, and I know that you don't rely on medical, but when yeah. you're getting your blood work done, they're not saying like, watch the red meat intake. Uh, no, he's, but he did say, when I told him what I was doing, because he, he, was, he was marveled, blown away at my blood work. Right. And he said, well, Tom, you've got to have some vegetables. And I said, why? They were killing me. And he looked at me and I said, let me ask you a question, doc. Do you know anybody who's 61 years old who has blood work that looks as good as mine right now? Right. I didn't know his answer was going to be, and he just said, "Good point." So it he was. He just uh, said, "He just said good point." He said, "Good point," because again, my, I'm healthier now, and I've always been very health conscious. I've always taken. I mean, when I was a musician, not so much. Maybe uh, did a lot of stupid stuff, but you know, since I've been in my mid 30s or so, I've been very aware of. I need to keep this body healthy because I want to live the maximum life I can live. And I've, you know, done a, I live outdoors. I do a lot. I've done a lot of rock climbing. I've done a lot of backpacking. I'm always saying I've got to keep this body preserved and as healthy as I can. But I believe the healthiest thing I could do was eating granola for breakfast and eating lots of, you know, eating huge salads and chicken and not so much red meat. And I'm, you know, it's the information I had for me was wrong. I'm not saying everybody needs to do this or this is right for everybody, but for me, I started doing a lot more research. I went to the pure, I went to, to eating like early man ate in, in North in North America, Northern Europe, pure carnivore, meat and fat. And my problems disappeared one by one over the course of two two to three weeks. And my wife, my wife was, she was in tears at one point saying, honey, you can't do this. She was really worried. I was losing weight. I wasn't overweight. I was I was 196 feet, 190. I'm now 160. I went down to to, to 160. I'm now 167 is about where I stabilized. And uh, she was really upset about it. I said, honey, look, I'm going to go 90 days. And 90 days of any diet's not going to end your life. My body's going to be fine. And if 90 days, if my blood work, if things look bad, honey, 
I'm going to go back to eating, doing, doing everything that you want me to do. And she was just like, holy cow, you're right. <laughs> so she no longer worries about it. She's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. So, it, so carnivore is meat and fat. Yeah, I eat thirty percent. I eat thirty percent of my diet is fat, and if I do it like if if I do a ribeye, I buy a whole ribeye, the whole thing, a rib steak, and I cut my own steaks, leaving the fat on. I try to buy a whole new the new the strip, the big, and leave the fat cap on. If I'm doing a like if I go to a butcher shop or anywhere, they trim way too much fat off the meat, so I'll supplement it with butter, is the easiest, um, or bacon. I'll do bacon on, uh, which sometimes at you know restaurants and stuff, I've you know. Steak and eggs with a side of bacon. Like, what about potato? No, and I say no to all the sides, and the waitress always give you that look. They they all think like, holy cow, this guy's gonna die, because people think you're nuts. Yet, and I've had so many people comment you know, like, well, I'm doing a business like a breakfast thing, and they're all you know doing their thing. And most business guys, CEOs I know, I work with in groups, or I, they're all health conscious. Most people are, and they see me doing exact opposite of everything they've been told. You scan the room. Who's the healthiest guy in the room? Who looks the healthiest? It's me. And uh, I get a kick out of it, but uh, it's it works. It's it, I'll tell you. I mean, it's it's a pain in the ass. I mean, it's it's not. So it's, with with fat, can you eat cheese? Like in cheese, I and, do. I don't eat a lot of cheese. I I mean, I would assume that cheese is not part of the carnivore diet. It, it, it's hard cheeses. Yeah, it's it it's it's dairy. I mean, dairy. But that wasn't available to cavemen. Milk, you're right. Milk, it's 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 not a uh, the caveman diet is probably a derivation. Is that different than carnivore? I, I I've not looked. I don't I don't research it. I really don't know. But uh, I know that the the carnivore maintaining your body in that ketosis state, cheese is acceptable. But there's there's a lot of arguments to be said that lactic acid is is, is really bad for you. That that humans should not. Once children are weaned, they shouldn't have milk anymore. Shouldn't. There's, I mean, the data goes all the, over the place on this, but uh, the other side of carnivore is, I mean, I like good restaurants. I mean, who doesn't like, I mean, seafood risotto. That's a bomb. I love a good seafood risotto or a good, or going to a really good, like, French restaurant. Well, if you just carnivore diet, I mean, when I was pure, when I first started, I was meat, salt, and water. No spices, no nothing. I did. I now do some seasoning because there's a point where, like, you know, I feel good. I also want to enjoy my meals and enjoy what I'm doing. And uh, and when I travel, um, if I go to a nice restaurant, I'll go. I say going off plan. I was in Europe with my son. He's he lives in London. We went to spend some time in Belgium, and I didn't worry about the diet. I was there with him. We just had a ball, ate good food. Three days into the trip. And I'm waking up in the morning running hot water on my hands because they're so stiff from the arthritis. It comes right back. But then I came home, went back in my diet, and you know, a week later I'm back to normal. So I'm not a, uh, I'm not one of those purists that says, oh, it's this way or no way. You have to, you know, I know people in the carnivore world, they're like, it's a sin to eat anything but meat. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm still going to enjoy my life. And if I want some risotto, I'm gonna have, I, I, I'll pay a price for it. I know that I'll wake up and my hands will be stiff. Sometimes that's okay. It's worth it. You know, it's 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 worth dealing with a little a little pain in your joints to have a really good meal with friends once in a while. But uh day in, day out. Did it change you with the way you approach 
your employees or the way you conversate or converse? Is it, did it change your, was there any kind of like sadness, depression, darkness? Was there any lethargic um, kind of down days to where you're like, oh, it, did it change that to where now you're, you, you say you're always on? Were you always, always on before this diet? Or has it changed you in that way too, mentally and emotionally as well? To the people that I work with, they would say I'm always on. But there's what I call showtime. You know, as, as the owner of a business, when I walk through that door, regardless of what's going on in my world, when I open the door of the office, for me it's showtime. I set the mood. So I walk in the office. Now, I could have, I could have something, you know, um, crazy. You know, my dad had cancer when he was really sick and things were getting bad. The minute I opened the door to my office, I walked in and, hey, guys, what's going on? I mean, I'm on. And that's my job to be on, to, to set that, you know, that life is great, aspire for more, keep driving forward. And I turn that on whenever I have to in front of, and with my people. When I walk into a room, I tell my sales reps and everybody, I talk to, I've, I've mentored a lot of younger people saying, when you walk into a room of unknown people, throw your shoulders back, hold your head up high, and you walk in like you are the shit. You are, you, you are the man. You walk in like you own the place because that's people's first impression. And if you walk in kind of with your head down, kind of slowly, kind of without a sense of purpose, people are going to think this person doesn't have a sense of purpose. But that turning it on, being on, having to fake that, I don't do that much anymore. I'm just on. They don't, I don't think they see a difference, but for me, I'm never having to say, boy, I could use a, uh, you know, I could use a monster. I could use a, I don't drink monster, but a, uh, a Red Bull, you know. 11 o'clock, 3 in the afternoon. I could use a uh, shot of caffeine. I, don't, I, I relied on that a lot, and I don't anymore. So it's a, uh, I don't know, I, just, I feel better. I just feel all day, every day better than I used to. And uh, my, <laughs> the, the thing I talked to a few people I was talking to business about this is I waited too long to figure it out. You know, I'm 61 years old. In 15 summers, I'm 76. And that is getting kind of old, isn't it? So in 10 summers, I'm 71. I've got that right now as my big, this year is, I use that 10 summers talk. This is my wife, drives her nuts. She's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing, so honey, why are you doing that? 10 summers. I got 10 summers, so I'm not going to waste time. I don't, I don't watch TV. I don't own a TV. I mean, we bought a TV because we built a new den. Figured it had to have a TV, but... Um, my kids and I will get up and watch an F1 race early in the morning, but I've got 10 summers till I'm 71, so I get up in the morning. i got to pack in as much as I can because I don't want to end up being, you know, in my 80s where you get into an age where it's hard to do things. Looking back saying, I wish I'd done more when I was younger. I'm looking I, this up, but um, I heard somebody talking about the amount of weeks that you have in your life. That's a, it was a guest on Joe Rogan. I heard that podcast, and it's actually you can buy this, and it's a, there's yeah, I don't know the name of it, but you actually map out the rest. Of, you map out the rest of your life, and some people think it's that's morbid, that's horrible, but it's not. It's actually, I mean, I got things I still want to do. I'm running out of time to do it. I, I mean, I, it took me too long to figure out how to be a CEO of a company. I struggled most of my life in business. I've always been a. I've always run a business. I've, I've been an entrepreneur almost, almost my whole life. Prior to being a guitar player, when I was a little kid, I had a lawn mowing business. 
I hired my friends and we mowed lawns. Actually, it was a cool little business. I got into guitar and I was a musician and I really was pursuing that. But that really is, whether you're in a band or what you're doing, it's still you. You know, you're working for you. And then I got into business and I did okay. You know, I provide, had enough money to start a family. We lived in a nice house. Things are going, my business is never, could, I couldn't get past $5 million in sales. And it wasn't until I was in my 50s. And I really said, there's a reason every company I've ever run levels off at $5 million. That reason is me. It's got to be me. So I started doing research and I joined a Vistage, you know, a CEO group, got a business coach. I started just gaining an education. I never, you know, I never went to college. I didn't, I didn't have any kind of formal education. And I, all my businesses were sales companies. So I just immersed in the world of sales. I know how to sell. But I never worked for a company that had a CEO. I didn't know what they were. And uh, it wasn't until my mid-50s that I realized, or I was actually learned, taught what a CEO, what that job actually is. And I started changing and applying the things I was learning, and secure it went. You know, we, we had some tough years um, in 2012, 2013, and that's right when I started really making these changes. And then we came out of it. And then uh, from 2014 up through now, we've been in Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies in America twice. Uh, the company's just, I mean, we're just, we're just killing it. We're, and it's not me. It's I found good people, got them doing what I want them to do, and then I've left them alone to do it. And, you know, the ops side of my company, Brad runs it, and uh, I stay out of it because he's so much better than me. In that in that skill set, and I just let him run. And he and I talk on a regular basis, but I don't talk much about what he's doing. I don't care because you know what, he gets it done. Chris runs marketing. Firecracker. I mean, just, just. I mean, I was a sales and marketing guy, and that's what I did in the company. And I hired Chris because I realized I can't keep. I, I don't have time to do everything that needs to be done. And I realized, holy crap, I arrogantly think I'm good at marketing, but he's an actual chief marketing officer and there's a world of difference so uh and i pretty much let him i talk to him a lot and we share a lot of ideas but you know i'm trying to let go of the reins and let these guys run and they're running and the whole company is everybody's everybody's excited you know, we've got a great mission a great plan and uh it's all about performance you know not not like a performance of the individuals but secure it is all about the performance side of our industry about tying gun storage to performance, to how we live with guns, why we own them, all the things that we involving firearms, storage should integrate with the performance side, not be an afterthought. It's it's absolutely working. I don't get that. The guns, the performance part of it, you're saying that the way you store guns, it starts there? I th that's, that's, that's my belief. I mean, for me, and I, you know, my background is not lifelong avid hunter surrounded by all this stuff my background is building i've been building military armory since 2002 and we've built we do most of this you know special forces seal teams all these guys that are these guys are performance-based teams and their lives depend on their ability to perform and they consider you know how those guns are stored organized accessed quick you know everything has to do with performance perfectly in the field because people's lives are on, on online that's i spent a lot of time doing that and then we started looking at the civilian world the commercial world and gun safes and going into that space and 
the gun safe is, a, is what I call a dumb piece of material. I don't mean dumb as disparagingly or disrespectfully. I'm using it more clinically as it's non-intelligent storage. It's not, no part of a gun safe is, um, integrates with why you own a firearm, how you use a firearm, what you consider important with a firearm. A gun safe goes in your basement or goes in your den, and at the end of the day, when you're done at the range, you're out hunting, you're out shooting clays, you're shooting ducks, you know, the performance side of your life, you come home, clean it, and you put it in the safe and forget about it. And that's the end of your day. We look at it as if you're going to own firearms, store them in a way that is congruent or helps your performance side of why you own them. For safety and security, store guns in a way that's the most secure way you can store them. And that is out of sight where nobody even knows you own firearms. That's why all of our safes are small, lightweight, and you can put them in places of your home where nobody looks. We call that decentralized storage. It also, all of our safes are fast access. And the principles of decentralized storage and fast access means like in my home, I'm never more than probably three seconds, three to four seconds from armed and ability to defend myself. Yet people come into my home and they would never know that I own a firearm. That's the performance side of, of firearm storage. Also, storing a firearm in a, meth, in, a, in a way that the gun will perform perfectly. You know, gun safes just have a, you know, those little W's, the little cloth, you know, leather W's, and they say, you know, hold 60 guns. Well, we all know that's nonsense. If you actually try to fit 60 guns in a safe, you're going to, they're going to be, sl you, you'll never do it. And you're packing them all in. We find most safes with modern rifles, with scopes and things at less than half their stated capacity, the guns are banging into each other. And they're so also stacked. So it's a 50-gun safe at less than 25 guns, they're, they're, they're touching each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, and we look at, again, we're taking from the military. When, when a sniper goes into combat, sometimes he has one shot to make. And if he misses it, people are going to die. He has to make that shot. Our system holds a gun so that all guns are free and clear. All scopes are free and clear. A zeroed, a zeroed firearm or weapon will always be zeroed. And your guns will, I mean, respect shouldn't, I was saying, respect doesn't end when you close the door. When you close the door of our safe, those guns are still being respected in that how they're being stored correctly and properly. In the environment they're in, there's nothing corrosive. There's a lot of corrosive materials in gun safes. That's why they sell all those products to stop corrosion. We don't worry about it. Properly clean and oil a gun, put it in my safe. There's no corrosion issues. But it's getting people to, again, a lot of people have guns for, for hunting, for sport shooting, for training, for home defense. But everybody that owns firearms at one level is thinking, if things get bad at my home, I can defend myself. There's always that thought of firearms are for personal defense. If somebody breaks into your home, you can defend your life and you can defend your family. Well, people go to the range. I see people with handguns. I've taken a lot of handgun training classes, a lot of tactical carbine classes. I enjoy taking them. And you're practicing, you always tell you, practice your draw. Dry fire drills to practice, practice, pra practice your mechanics. It's like, it's like being a musician. You practice the mechanics every day for at least 30 days, build muscle memory, so that in a conflict, when you're, you know, everything's slow motion, you're, you're stressed, you got tunnel vision. If you practice often enough, you'll do those motions without thinking and you can make that shot clean. Well, accessing your firearm is part of that scenario. So when people buy our safes, Part of our instructions is, so I've got an agile six-gun cabinet in my front hall closet. Every time I take a coat out of that closet, I reach down, I do the combination, open it, and I close it. 
every time. I can, I've done it so many times without looking in total darkness. I put my hand on that safe. I can do that combination, open that safe, have a firearm out in, in seconds. Fast box under my bed. Every night when you go to bed, I reach down in the dark, quietly, calmly, and deliberately do that combination and open the fast box. I do that for 30 to 35 days to build muscle memory. I'm at a point now where somebody could walk into my bedroom and throw in a pack of firecrackers while I'm sleeping. And yes, yeah, chaotic, crazy scene. What's going on? You, you, you wake up in a panic. My arm's going down. I'm going to open that. And I'm going to have that firearm out of that safe in two to three seconds because I've practiced it so much. I can do it without thinking. It's muscle memory. And that's what we want people to do with firearm storage is consider your storage part. If you're con really concerned about home defense, then practice your access. And that's what our, our events we're doing, our surge events we're doing now, where we're bringing teams of people together with trainers for firearms training. But part of what we're doing is teaching them access training and storage training and the whole safety and security aspect of it and how that improves your uh, your performance across every reason you have firearms. Let me ask you this. If your kids are out of the house, you and your wife are empty nesters, what is the ideology about just taking that fast box, taking the gun out of it and setting it on your dresser for the night? Is the ideology that the person coming into your house will get it before you do if they're sneaky enough? But why would you even yeah. have that, that middleman step in there of the combination in the dark and you're breathing and staying yeah. calm um, when you could just have that gun readily available at night if you don't have any kids in the house, et cetera? Yeah, the, uh, that is such a great question. I've talked to so many people that are, I don't have kids. You know, I've got no boom, boom, boom. It's like, so I don't, I don't really worry about it. But if you start doing research on tragedies in America involving firearms and go back to looking at cases, it's almost like doing NTSB reports on looking at aviation crap you need to investigating things that go wrong in every scenario it's a chain of events a chain of things happen that resulted like in a child accidentally discharging a firearm killing themselves or killing someone else scenarios like that and if every gun in america was properly locked we could reduce those deaths by by, by a lot you could reduce a, i mean i use lanza um newtown that shooting he walked into his mom's house picked up her gun and fired two rounds into her chest before she, probably before she said a word. If her guns were properly locked, is it possible that he would have walked in, the mom could have recognized that the son had blown a gasket and maybe done something? We'll never know, but she never had the chance. Again, there's a chain right there that maybe was broken. I look at people, you have no kids, so I don't worry about locking my guns all the time. Well, again, we're talking about one in a million shots. But one in a million chances do happen. So the scenario I look at is an older couple, no kids, and no, no family that ever comes to visit. They don't worry about their guns. They live in a nice community. Their neighbors have a couple kids. Um, parents are in their late 30s. The guy has a stroke, and it's a freak thing. And they see the ambulance across the street. They're like, what's going on? They walk outside, and the, the wife's out there just freaked out, and the ambulance is taking the husband. And like, what's going on? And they're all going to go hot, and, they're, you know, and they're not sure if this guy's going to survive. And, and oh, no, well, no problem. We'll watch the kids. Go, go, go. And they all know each other. They're all good friends. They're all neighbors. So they've got these kids in their house now. And maybe the guy's in the hospital. He's not doing so good, but he's going to be there for a week or two. And the wife is spending a lot of time at the hospital trying to bounce back and forth. Her life is chaotic. The world's going crazy. But the neighbors are so cold. Like, look, go. 
We've got the kids, they're fine. Well, in this world, these neighbors have the kids and they've forgotten that he's got a, a handgun sitting in a drawer somewhere, unlocked. That he took out that night, the stroke happened. Well, just what, what I mean, he lives without locking his guns. He just, I just keep the gun in the drawer because, again, no kids. But now he's got kids in his house that he never thought would happen because it never occurred to him that the scenario of a neighbor, all these crazy things, the kids are there. They're not sure what's going on. They're you know four and five years old, and they're curious, and they're bored, and they're playing around the house, and they're doing hide-and-seek, and they're trying to keep them entertained. And, you know, these two people don't always aren't watching these kids 100% of the time because they're they're inexperienced at it and they're just, they have their lives to live and they got a movie going, the kids, and the kids wander around. All of a sudden, a kid finds this thing and he's fascinated with this. Oh, look at this. This is so cool. Well, there's a potential accident right there taking a tragedy and making it dramatically worse. Simply having your guns locked breaks breaks that chain and it, and it can't happen. And again, locking up a handgun, it's, it's inexpensive. I mean... There's a lot of solutions. We have very a very inexpensive solution that just gets a gun locked, and we have very we have much more high end ones that do a lot of other things. But every if every gun in America was properly locked, and we say that we mean locked out of sight, uh, trigger locks is not something we would support. You can't get them undone quick enough, and the gun is still visible. So it's uh, we believe all all gun safe should be locked in a manner that nobody. Knows so my scenario, Tom, is the fast box is underneath your bed. Yep. It's got your your handgun locked in it. Yep. At night, you don't have any kids. You take it out and you have it on your bedstand every night. Your point is that's where the mistakes could happen because I could get up, be in a hurry for work, leave it out. Yeah. Nephews come into the house that day. Instead, right. my point is why not take that that step of the combination out of the equation at night by just taking it out mm. and it, before you go to sleep and having it readily available on your bedside because you're saying that yeah. you could forget and go to work and something could happen the next day or you could have someone break into your house quietly and gain access to your firearm and it, it, it does happen people are killed with their right. own guns um it does happen for me i'm fast i have fast access my bedroom is on a second story so nobody's going to break into my bedroom without already being in my house um I, I don't see the I don't see a big enough advantage. Again, if you're truly concerned about safety and security in your home, that level, carry your firearm at all times. Conceal carry. When you go to sleep, I still would put it in a. I mean, there's fast access handgun safes that are so fast that there's I, this is no. I mean, the time it takes you to pick your gun up off your dresser, you could hit that combination and have that gun in your hand. We're really we're launching a new fast access handgun safe that is. If I practice with it and get good at it, I'm going to say that from the time I touch that safe, I've got the gun in my hand in a position to discharge the firearm at a target in two seconds. That's fast. That's, I mean, it's an amazingly quick, and it, it opens and presents the, the handgun in a matter where your hand goes to the handgun exactly the way that you will hold that gun, and you pull it back, double grip, and boom, you're you're in a position to turn and defend yourself. It's so fast. Um, so I, I think as as responsible gun owners, if every gun in America was properly secured, we'd prevent a lot of tragedies. I just think we should do it. Makes total sense. It's uh, and again, if you're that concerned during the day, conceal carry a gun in your home. Okay, I, I, I would come, never do that. I, I keep you know I just, well, I just I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to come back with part two of this. It'll be you know right away but let's talk about the 
the products real quick. You yeah. already mentioned the fast box. You already mentioned yeah. the answer eight, the answer 12. Tell, let's just give the, a quick description of each one. Yeah. And then when we come back on part two of this podcast, I really want to do a deep dive in to these products because they are original. They are, yeah. an, you know, they are very practical when it comes to storing your handguns. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I want to, in part two, I want to come back and, and retouch on the, the performance part of this because we know when we launched this foul life safe and the, the foul life edition, I take pride in it. Like that, I want it. Like I was showing you some of my collectibles today of like, that makes me want to be in that room more. If I'm in that yeah. room more and that's where I work, if it's my office and I feel good about my surroundings, I feel in mentally and emotionally, yeah. my confidence goes up. If I feel like my surroundings are right. So if I know that my guns are being stored the right way and they're organized and they're practical and they're they're what a sniper would do with the performance of that gun being taken out and not rubbing up against another gun, the scope's not banging into something, taking right. a chance of it being off. Um, that's how I feel about this yeah. organizational system. So I want to come back and talk about okay. that. The pride in your storage system should be there. That's where it starts. Absolutely. That's where it starts. So what 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 do we have? That, describe the fast box real quick. Through it, run through it. I can roll through it real quick. We start off. We, we've got our we got some handgun safes that are designed for quick, simple, affordable handgun storage. Then we go to the fast box twenty, which is a twenty inch high version of our fast box designed it'll hold up to eight handguns or handguns with ammunition and that's just a for guys who have multiple handguns it's it's a it's a it's a neat product people also use it for ammo storage it is a vented product so you can store ammo in it then we go to our full fast box line which is a 40 and a model 47 they can mount under your bed in a vehicle vertical or horizontal for fast access depending whether under your bed or in a closet we go to our agile six gun cabinet our number one selling and I can't prove this, but it may be the number one selling gun safe in America now. We're getting close. Um, that's a six-gun cabinet, weighs 100 pounds. Once you bolt it down, it's as secure as any other safe. You can put them anywhere. The Answer Series, which is what Foul Life Answer 8 is, that's an amazing safe, what, you, what you've created with that. Um, that's for the, that's a, it's a larger format. Looks more like a traditional safe, yet still thinner, so you can put it in closets. And it gives you a lot more gear storage with your firearms, a lot more customizable type storage. And then the Answer 12 is a double-door version, and that's for the true gearhead tech guy who wants... And, and when you open those up, it's, 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 the most, it's a, one of the nicest-looking safes you'll ever see with, all, with everything, the way you can deck out and organize everything. And then we go up to, uh, we do our make our true safe, which is, we call it the true safe. It's a, you know, 1,600 pound cement filled safe. We don't sell many of them. We only made it to prove a point. This is what a true safe is. And it's, it's totally impractical, but occasionally we sell one. But we, we made it to show the world, you, you know, this is, this is the bomb, but it's just way too heavy. And then our gun walls, we take our gun safe, the panels that go in our safes, and they're available. Um, to build gun rooms, gun walls, and custom vaults, which we do quite a bit of. And the last piece is our Model 84 Tactical Weapon Storage Platform, which is our military system, and those are available to consumers. Um, we sell quite a few of them um, for people who want to get... What does that look like? It's just a, they're gray, 84-inch high, 36-inch wide weapon racks. It's the exact same system that's used in military armories all over the world. And for guys who, I mean, there's a lot of retired military guys who want what I call a team room look, where they want they want their guns, they, they've got a secure room, and they're putting all these racks in because they want it to look and feel like a military armory. It's also, I mean, for storing gear. 
Um, those cabinets, the shelf loading in those, it's 900 pounds per shelf. You get as many shelves as you want. You can't overgross this cabinet with weight, with, with how much gear you can store in these things. So it's a, it's an open vent. You can see the guns in those. I mean, they're all the front doors are all are all perfed with a you know triangle hole pattern because in the military they want to be able to visually see their inventory without having to unlock the racks. So it's not something you'd put in a home where security is number one. This is something that really is for guys who are who are building a a military-style team room. Um, the gun wall panels are probably a better choice, for I think, for most homeowners who want a gun room. And uh, we're starting to work with home builders now to build hidden rooms and custom rooms in new homes. They look um, good. Oh, they do. It's, I uh, love them. I'm, I'm about to start a project. Uh, my wife and I were talking. So I'm converting my home office into a um, hidden room-style uh gun storage and presentation we're going to call it because i'm setting this up so it's secure but then when i open it up it just it just looks good it's a it's a real show off of what our system can do so um the materials are, are going to be ordered next week i got my builder lined up i should have that built by the end of july so i want when you when you start talking about gun rooms this brings on a whole new idea of making sure that nobody can get into this yeah. room as far as i want to come back on the next podcast yeah, let's, let's talk and about, talk about that because the security of a gun room is big and i've been in some really cool ones yeah. where you don't even know they're there that you know, is his, that's the bomb right there secrecy secrecy is the best security in the world and i always tell people is i feel very secure about my firearms because people coming into my home who i not know well maybe a party we got friends of friends people coming in nobody would know that i own firearms there's no evidence in my home. And that's where we, that's yeah. where 90% of the, of the, you know, the, the, the motto of taking things for granted. Yeah. 90% of gun owners or more, probably more, don't do that. No. And that's a big problem because strangers come in the house. I don't care if it's a yeah. UPS delivery driver, a FedEx guy comes in, a plumber's in there. They're always looking there. If, if everything's always visible to them of like, Man, this dude's got some really nice gun safes. I wonder if there's jewelry in there. I wonder, you know, it's it's not it's oh, not it's not a secret anymore. There's so much data that shows that people breaking into homes were in there before. We're on there before. Yeah, yeah, we're there. You know, for a party. For, and you, again, friends of you know, friends of friends, kids, friends, things going on is. Yeah. I don't want people to know what I own in firearms. That's 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 my a, that's that's a mindset in itself. That's yeah. that's such a discipline of yeah. not bragging or being. Oh. And I've been I've been that guy. Yeah. And I'm looking back on it like what an idiot. Yeah. I want to talk about that more, but I yep. also I also want to um, you know tell the listeners that we're getting ready to do something really cool of taking each one of these pieces that you just introduced. We're going to come back and talk about what we do today, but we're going to go through different properties today and have Tom, the owner and founder of Secure It Tactical Gun Storage, Secure It Gun Storage Systems. I want to, Tom is going to walk us through where these are applicable, how to to maximize mm -hmm. off of the design of these, where to store them, ideas of where to store them for fast access, for security, for secrecy. Right. You know, like you say, you reach in and get your coat and each time you put that combination in, practice let it become second nature you don't want to forget that combo you don't want a battery to run out and not know right. it you're always aware of these because you're taking pride in the way that yeah. you store your guns because it's the first piece of the performance it's the first right. part of it right right it's just it's, it's shifting storage to your per performance mindset like you go to the range and train that's performance you go out hunting shooting clays that's all performance well storage is also storage and access is performance and 
doing it right, there's so many, I mean, doing it right is simple to do, but doing it right gives you so much confidence because now you know you truly are safe and secure. You Now you know you truly can get to these things quickly and it looks good, feels good. Um, you take great pride in what you're doing. I mean, I'm sorry, but you open up a traditional gun safe that's loaded up with guns and they're all stacked in there, things are laying down, and things, it's a mess. I couldn't take pride in that. And I mean, that's why I don't use those systems. That's why we brought our system to the consumer world is as I was gaining in my hunting, you know, I'm, I'm late, as I was gaining more firearms and becoming more and more involved in the sport, I wasn't gonna, I didn't wanna put my guns in one of those safes. It was a mess. It makes and, total sense. Yeah, it's uh, I can't wait to see it yeah. all in action today. That's Tom, secure it. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. We're gonna do a few more this week. Tom's at Out West visiting. Um, there's nothing like education. Um, I guess it's kind of like upper education staying educated on it it's something yeah. that you need to be practicing at all times yep. all times whether it's archery shots whether it's rifle shots i have my opinions of long distance rifle shooting i truly do especially when it comes to animals there's a different mentality of sniper shooting long distance western shooting mm -hmm. they call it um there there i have we can get into that later yeah. but this is all about taking pride in the way we store our guns our firearms handguns muzzle loaders rifles shotguns it doesn't matter security has an answer for all this that's why you call your some of your safes the answer yeah. um we're going to talk about that but we are going to tour around with tom today yeah. and learn how to capitalize on these great designs of being confident with it because if it does come down that one in a million shot tom's referring to you got to be ready. And storage is a big part of that. Something that we cannot take for granted. And a lot of us do. Truly, a lot of us do. My kid, my daughter was brought up with the mentality that we live in this. You're not to touch any of this. You don't touch the safes. But here, we're going to educate them fully on what these guns do. Respect that gun. Have confidence with that gun. Don't be scared of that gun. If there's a knife laying around, you don't just pick it up and wield it and not know exactly what that knife can do. It's all about education and re-educating yourself, no matter how much experience you have, no matter how old you are. I know a lot of snipers that still go through training classes mm -hmm. to stay up on it, right? They're Absolutely. always staying up on new techniques and new ideology. So that's what we're going to do with Tom today. The Foul Life Podcast brought to you by Secure It Guns storage systems where can they find you tom google secure it. just search, i mean secure it .com. you just search for the word secure it we're all over social media all over the web and a ton of information available on the website and uh yeah take the time to learn and you're welcome for those free fishing lessons yesterday yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with another episode of the foul Eye podcast thank you all very much it's about in the air. It's about